What is God's true design and plan for marriage? Be encouraged that there is hope for your marriage to be good and God-honoring because He is the one who brought you together. Hold on to the promises and covenant-keeping love of God as you remember that He has made you one. Have courage to stand in our culture today by having a strong marriage that displays the love and sacrifice of the gospel. Hi there, and welcome to Unshaken. I'm your host, Julie Van Warmer, and I'm really excited that you're joining us today. Today is episode 191, and our episode's title is, And He Made Them One. Aristotle first coined a term that dates all the way back to ancient Greece, and the term says, the whole is greater than the sum of its individual parts. And also, how can you even forget the phrase we heard, um, teamwork makes dream work, right? Now, I know you're probably thinking, okay, I'm, enough, I'm done with these kind of coined phrases, but there's one more I want to share with you that, I, that I've always liked, and it's the word team, right? And it's the idea that team, it's an acronym meaning together everyone achieves more. And there's one more that says, there's no I in team. See, these were popular phrases that were used in the business world to focus on the benefits of collaboration, right? That there's something about working together in a group that's helpful. Or they've been used in school settings to promote unity in the classroom or when you're working on a group project. And honestly, they were used in great abundance on actual sports teams, right? You know, you do better when you're working together as a team to win a game. Now, listen, I've been watching a lot of junior high basketball and I've been enjoying it. And I've also been eating a lot of popcorn. Yum, makes me hungry. My son has been playing and it's been really fun to watch and I actually enjoy basketball quite a bit. I'm not much of a baseball fan um, or football fan, but I like to sit down sometimes and watch a game with my husband and the boys. Um, but here's the interesting part. When my son's team was younger, like third grade, fourth grade, they honestly played mostly for themselves, right? They just ran down the court and tried to shoot each time they got the ball. There wasn't much passing and honestly, there wasn't much teamwork. Um, they really ran no plays, maybe a couple they tried, and their coach did a good job, right? But as I've watched them grow, as I've watched them over the years, I completely understand this benefit of each member as they run a play, right? My son isn't probably the top scorer on the team, but he can defend. And his role as a defender is equally important as a shooter. I have often heard a little phrase that says, offense sells tickets, but defense wins championships. And this is really true in many other areas. We all have roles in life to play, and we need to all be on the same team, you know, for the common good, to win, so to speak. Well, this is so applicable to marriage, isn't it? This is another place where we must be on the same team. In fact, sometimes when my husband and I, here's a little secret, are in a disagreement about something, he will often look at me and say, Julie, I am on your team. <laughs> I think for a minute I forget. He's reminding me that we're in this together. Honestly, it is huge to me. It diffuses my anger and my frustration. It helps me see that we're actually, although our opinions might be different, we actually have a bigger or a greater plan. My husband does, and together we need to work together. And that's something that will be helpful to both of us. 
So today, Andrea Van Engen is going to step up to the plate, so to speak, and walk us through a talk given at our women's conference called And God Made Them One. Did you catch what I did there? Okay, I'm going to stop making the sports puns. So, you know, let's just jump right in. We are here to talk about marriage. So I'm sure there are some newlyweds here and some who have been married many years. Well, I've been married to Andrew for 17 years and we have five kids. We met in college and had an instant connection because we both played sports there. He played football and I played softball. Athletics have been a big part of our lives individually and we've enjoyed them together as well. Now, if you've ever played on a team or been close to someone who has, you know you don't just grab some random people and show up on game day expecting to have much success. The team needs to be assembled and practice together a lot in order to have a team that works well and achieves their goals. Essentially, the more that a team is one, the better it will function in the long term. In our culture today, I don't think anyone would strongly disagree with that statement. However, in our individualistic society, I would get some serious pushback for talking about how a married couple must be one in order to achieve their goals. I think we are all well aware that the rate of unhappy marriages and divorce is extremely high, even among those in the church. The world at large laughs at oneness. Either thinking a married couple can be divided for any reason at any time, or that a couple should just avoid officially joining as one at all. So what do we do with that? I'm assuming you signed up for this session because you're interested in learning more about oneness in marriage. Perhaps you're on your way to getting married and excited to learn more. Or maybe your marriage is struggling and you're searching for help. Maybe you're just looking for some encouragement to stay the course in your marriage. Early in the book of Genesis, God lays out his perfect design for marriage, his establishing oneness in a marriage. And that will be the foundation upon which all that we talk about today will be built. In a talk on marriage, there is so much that can be said. But today, as we focus on being one, it makes me think of being a team. So in the context of marriage, we will be talking about team roles, team goals, and team strategies to see how we can achieve the oneness that God intends. So let's take a look at what God does say about marriage. Even if this reading from Genesis is a familiar passage, listen carefully with fresh ears. Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So verse 18 says that God said it is not good for the man to be alone. This is the first time God looked at his creation and declared something not good. Adam was alone and God said it was not good. So God made a helper suitable for him, a wife named Eve. A few verses earlier, God had given Adam the role of worker and keeper of the garden. And with the creation of Eve, her role was established as helper to Adam, a helper suitable for him. And when we think about how woman was created, we get a clear picture of the oneness that God intended. In verse 23, Adam is essentially saying, Eve is like me because she came from me, compared to the animals who didn't. Eve was made from Adam and for Adam. Male and female animals were created separately, but woman was taken out of man. So now that we have some background on God's intention for marriage, let's dig into what I'm calling the team roles. On every team, there are roles and positions. These are determined by the coach. Within a marriage, there are roles. These are determined by God. I've been on dozens of sports teams from the time I was a little kid. When I was in junior high, my dad decided that I was going to be the pitcher for my high school softball team. I had no idea what I was doing. That position was not my first choice. I had been on enough softball teams to see the pressure the pitcher was under. But my dad saw that the current pitchers needed some help, and he thrust me into that role. He did what he could to help me and see that I was prepared to grow into that role. And guess what? In the end, I never wanted to be anywhere else on the field. God decides my role in marriage, regardless of how I feel about it, and even if I think I might be better equipped in a different role. In our Genesis passage, God made Eve from Adam, created for him to be a helper suitable for him. She didn't have a say in that. And she can't do anything to change God's ordained creation. Culture around us would like to think it's not fair that Eve, that women, get stuck in this certain role without a choice in the matter. But God's decision is clear. And we are fools when we try to change this because we think we know better. So the first role we see for Eve is helper. As we read in Genesis 2.18, God calls Eve Adam's helper before the fall. So it's not part of the curse, not a position God put Eve in as punishment. And in verse 20, after Adam names all of the animals, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So what did the Lord do? Well, he didn't create another type of animal to give Adam companionship. He didn't create another man to be Adam's buddy. He didn't create another man to be Adam's helper. These would not be suitable for Adam. These would not be an adequate helper. God created woman, and only she was fit for him. The word used for helper here in Hebrew is azer. In various places in the Bible, it refers to God, to the Holy Spirit, and to the woman. A wife is not just someone to help her husband do laundry or help with the yard work when he runs out of time. And God doesn't say who should be the one to make dinner or pay the bills. These things will get worked out between each married couple. Helper instead means to plead for another's cause, 
to intercede on their behalf, to pour into. That is the meaning of Azer. Let me say that again. Helper means to plead for another's cause, to intercede on their behalf, to pour into. That is the meaning of Azer. You can probably see why it refers to God and the Holy Spirit, but it's pretty amazing that it also refers to woman. The role of helper is to help our husband glorify God in all he does. Now, let me tell you, as I have grown in my knowledge of scripture and in the roles within marriage, I have often asked, where's my helper? Why do I have to always be the helper? But when we understand this from a biblical perspective, it's a beautiful thing and should actually encourage us in our role. And by the way, my helper, your helper is the Holy Spirit. When we view helper as merely a maid or a chef or one to lend a hand, that's when resentment can come. But when we view it rightly as a help to our husband and how he leads and glorifies God, the focus is taken off of us and off of an imperfect husband. And the focus is where it belongs, on the Lord, who is worthy of all our time, sacrifice, and glory. And God is so kind to show us our errors as he gently leads us to truth. God has had to teach me what it looks like to be one, and he has used big changes in my life to do that. In the first several years of our marriage, there was a bit of a disconnect. We both worked full-time, often on different schedules, so dinner together wasn't consistent. Andrew traveled quite a bit for work, so I would spend time with friends or work on hobbies and projects. Though I didn't really realize it, looking back, I can see that oneness was missing. We moved to Maryland right after we got married, and I knew that would happen even before we got engaged because of his work. Yes, it was kind of sad to be leaving family, but I didn't think twice about it because when you're first married, you would go just about anywhere with your new husband. But then, about four years later, Andrew took a new position that was going to transfer us to a place not really of our choosing. I grew up in Michigan, so moving to Ohio seemed like a real letdown. There was nothing exciting or appealing about moving into the Toledo area. But this was God beginning to teach me about oneness, that I am to follow him wherever he leads, that I am to trust and respect Andrew's decisions, even if that meant moving where I didn't want to be. You see, I like to be in control. Anyone here identify with that? It's why I loved pitching. With the ball in my hand, I felt in complete control of the game. I wanted the responsibility and burden on the pitching mound. In fact, I would love it when I was brought in as a reliever when the bases were loaded. I wanted to carry that burden for my team. But I am sure thankful that it is not mine to bear in marriage. But when we belittle our role as helper and instead try to lead and undermine our husband's position, we are saying that we would rather have that responsibility and burden that belongs to him. God has shown me that when I play my role well, when I don't try to step into a role that isn't mine, I am blessed by it. And my husband can lead and bear the responsibility that is his much better. Our husbands won't lead perfectly. And some might not try to lead much at all. We need to trust the Lord, the one who is worthy of our trust, even if our husband doesn't always seem worthy of it. You see, 
Our husband is responsible before the Lord for how he leads us. We can help him in this or hinder him in this. My youngest child is almost three. Sometimes she's surprising at what she can do on her own, but when it comes to buckling her seatbelt, she's not quite there yet. So I have tasked one of my older kids with helping her get buckled up. Does she always like this? If you've been in this situation, you know that she wants to do it herself or see if she can get away with not wearing them at all. I, the authority, have instructed my older child to help my youngest child. She can cooperate and be a help to her older sibling, or she can protest and make it harder for her sibling to obey. Do we make it hard for our husband to lead us, to fight their sin, to obey God's word and glorify him? God has placed our husband over us, and he is accountable. We need to ask ourselves, do we fight our husband in an effort to block his authority, or do we help him to lead in a godly way? Ephesians 5 speaks to another role, that of respecter. It says that wives are to be subject to or submit to our own husbands as to the Lord. It goes on to tell husbands to love their wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This section ends by saying, Each of you is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So here we are given clear roles established by the Lord. Husbands are to love their wife, and wives are to respect their husband. These distinct roles are helpful in our being one. In his book, This Momentary Marriage, John Piper writes something that I think is a helpful way to look at this. He says, Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help to carry it through according to her gifts. It is the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. This description would be in opposition to the wife who is trying to make her own rule and ignoring the leadership and authority of her husband that has been established by God. It would be me as a young girl kicking and screaming when my dad said, you're going to be a pitcher because I think that's what's best. Too often, I have kicked and screamed when my heavenly father said, you are to be Andrew's helper. By God's grace, he's shown me this error. If you're in that place right now, repent and seek to understand what God's word says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we learn that woman is the glory of man. Verses 8 and 9 say that woman originated from man and that man wasn't created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. How does that sit with you? Woman was made for the man's sake. Like we just talked about with the woman being man's helper, this should be something that we treasure to know that God has given us an incredible purpose and calling. But if we are honest, Feminism and our sin has distorted this to cause us to recoil at the thought of being made for man's sake. This distortion breeds discontentment in our role. Instead of embracing God's calling, we often want to be our own reflection in glory. It's important to remember that trusting in God allows us to overcome this distortion. I think fear is a driving force in our wanting to have control and do things our own way. So we fear that if we obey God's word 
it will cause us to be left unsatisfied, unfulfilled, feeling like a doormat. It causes us to ponder the question, did God really say? Just like Eve did when the serpent tried to confuse God's truth in the garden. As we trust in him, we can be sure that he will bless our obedience. So our team roles as given by God, our helper and respecter of our husband, and our husbands are to love us as Christ loved the church. Now let's think about team goals. What are some goals we want to achieve within our marriage? There is no I in team. You've probably heard this phrase, even if you're not into sports. The idea is that there is literally no I, no letter I, in team. And the implication is that you can't win on your own. You need the help of your teammates working together. In marriage, there's no I in team. It's not about me, or my husband for that matter. It's all about God. But how can two sinners actually operate as one the way God intended? At my Aunt Andrew's wedding, the college chaplain who married us based his sermon on a passage from Ecclesiastes 4. Beginning in verse 9, it says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. It goes on to talk about picking each other up, keeping each other warm, and helping to not be overpowered by another. It finishes by saying, A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Of course, in reference to marriage, the three strands represent the husband, the wife, and the Lord. In a marriage, strength comes when the husband and wife first have a goal to be united with the Lord. Those three strands are united in a way that can't be quickly torn apart, not by conflict, not by health issues, not by dreams dashed or prayers unanswered. I realize not all of us here has a husband who desires to be united with the Lord. God's word speaks to this. In 1 Peter 3, it says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. I encourage you, no matter how your husband regards the Lord, be courageous and stand firm in your obedience to God's word. And that brings me to our second goal. Lay down your life. In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about how we are to love one another because of his love for us. Verse 13 says, No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. We know from Ephesians 5 that husbands are to give up their life for their wives, just as Christ did for the church. But here in John, we see that this self-sacrifice applies to all people in any relationship. Do you lay down your life? your desires, your preferences, your time, your control for your husband? When we do not love like this, perhaps we are not believing that God will bless us, that we need to ensure our needs are met. It can be seen when we are unwilling to forgive him when he hurt us, or when we insist that our to-do list is too full to run some errands for him, or something as petty as hiding our good chocolate from him. Jesus laid aside his preferences to do the Father's will, to humble himself, endure torture, and die for us. Yet I'm not willing to lay aside my desire to be heard, 
and have the final word. Gaining that individual win is just not worth the defeat it causes our marriage. We should have a goal of laying down our life for our husband in many ways. To do this very hard thing, we must trust God. He will have the last word for us. He will protect us. He knows our heart. We can trust that he will bring about whatever is good for us. Another goal that I think is helpful in maintaining oneness is to have realistic expectations of each other. Even within the best marriage, we will disappoint, hurt, and sin against one another. Our husbands won't and can't be all we need. Only God can be that. And when we understand that, then we are free to enjoy and respect our husband for who they are, not who we wish they would be. Elizabeth Elliot has a profound thought on this. She once said, A wife, if she is very generous, may allow that her husband lives up to perhaps 80% of her expectations. There is always the other 20% that she would like to change, and she may chip away at it for the whole of their married life without reducing it by very much. She may, on the other hand, simply decide to enjoy the 80%, and both of them will be happy. It's a heavy burden we place on our husband when we expect him to be what brings us fulfillment and satisfaction in this life. And it's also unfair to him to view him as a project to fix and mold according to our preferences. A realistic expectation is that he will fail just as you will. But the Lord is the sustainer of all, and that is an expectation that never fails. So these goals to be united, to lay down our lives, and to have realistic expectations all lead to the ultimate goal of marriage, to display the gospel. I do want to take a second and explain the gospel briefly. Not everyone has heard that word, while some have heard it but aren't sure what it means exactly. The word gospel literally means good news. The bad news is that all of humanity is under the curse of sin and eternally separated from God because of the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. The good news is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life on earth and pay the penalty of death that our sin requires. He died on the cross in our place, taking our sin upon him and making a way for us to be reconciled to God once again. So keeping the gospel in mind, the idea of love and submission, death bringing life, let's see how that applies to marriage. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is saying that marriage, to becoming one flesh, is a picture or a display. Marriage is meant to be a portrait of something else. Remember earlier in the Ephesians passage, we read about husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And it said wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. It's talking about our oneness within marriage being a picture of our oneness with Christ. Our oneness or union with Christ is described as his sacrificial love for us and our submission to him in response to that love. The way a husband is to love his wife should mirror that of Christ. He is to love and sacrifice for her. 
and she is to respond to this love in submission to him. So ladies, our marriages are to be a picture of the gospel. That is our ultimate goal in marriage, to be a living illustration of Christ and his bride being united as one. Whether or not we truly believe this will determine how willing we are to live in obedience to the roles we discussed earlier. And isn't it true that one of the best ways to stand for the truth of God's word today is to have a solid, happy marriage, one that displays the love, sacrifice, and submission of the gospel? I want each of us to think about what our marriage says to a watching world about Christ's love for the church. Now that we've talked about some goals that our marriage should work toward, how do we get there? On any team, it's important to have a strategy, a general plan to achieve the overall goal of winning the game. In basketball, you run certain plays depending on the defense or how much time is left on the clock. In football, you bring in certain players at certain times to accomplish a short-term goal during that play. So taking this idea into marriage and considering the goals we've talked about, what kind of strategies should we employ? First things first, are you basing your strategies on what the Bible has to say? God's word should be the center of your marriage. It is the playbook that God has given to us for any situation. It has all we need for life and godliness, including our marriage. Are you studying the playbook? If you've ever watched an NFL game, you've seen the quarterback with the play calling sheets on his forearm. I can't imagine what kind of mumble jumble that would look like to us. As the quarterback calls out the play, if a player hasn't studied the playbook, he won't know where to run, who to block, or what to do. I'm sure he would look quite silly running around aimlessly on the field. Do you ever feel like this in life? This aimless wandering can be how we are in our marriage when we haven't studied the playbook, when we don't know what is expected of us or what God has called us to do. I'm so thankful he hasn't left us without this vital tool. Let's be women who study God's word so that we can align our hearts to God's plan. And if your husband is a believer, I encourage you to spend time reading God's word together in some way. But if he isn't a believer, don't lose heart. You are responsible to know God's word for yourself, so stay rooted there through personal study or with a group of women. And let me encourage you again with words from 1 Peter that say, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. I have seen this happen in the lives of women I know. As a wife obeys God in submitting to her husband and praying for him, the husband sees the change and joy in her, and that draws him to Christ. Another important strategy to achieving our goals is communication. As a softball pitcher, I communicated with the catcher on every play. She would call the pitch, and I would agree or shake her off. But the point was so that she knew what pitch I was going to throw. That way she could better handle it if it didn't actually hit her glove. If there isn't good communication on the court or field, a team will have missed opportunities to score and win. Now, I think this term of good communication gets thrown around a lot when talking about marriage conflict. You might hear or think, 
we just keep fighting because it's miscommunication. If we knew how to communicate better with each other, we wouldn't have so many arguments. Now, I do think there's an aspect to that, but I don't want us to use it as an excuse for conflict, okay? Because even if we know how to communicate really well, our selfishness doesn't remember those skills in the heat of the moment. So I would like you to not think of good communication as a preventer of conflict, but as an enhancer of your oneness. And if our desire is to truly be one, we will take steps toward godly communication. The actual definition of communication is the exchange of thoughts, messages, or information by speech, signals, writing, or behaviors. Now, this idea could be an hour-long talk all on its own. So what I want to focus on is that communication can really affect our oneness with our husband. Are we trying to communicate in a godly, helpful way? Are we trying to listen to what our husband is trying to communicate? Consider how you are doing with your part in exchanging thoughts, messages, or information. I think we are all tempted to blame our husband for communication problems because by nature, women are more talkative. But that doesn't mean we have it all figured out or use our words for good or at the best time in the best way. Ooh, can we all agree that at times this is all of us? The way we communicate our tone, our body language, how we receive a response or rebuttal, and how we help or hurt our husband's communication, it all greatly affects our oneness. Tell me if you can identify with this. In the morning, you and your husband have a disagreement. It's not cleared up before one or both of you need to head out for the day. You go on with your business until later that day when you need to call to ask him for a favor. Or you hear something funny and you want to text him about it. It just doesn't feel right, does it? Because you have that poor communication and unfinished disagreement driving a wedge between you. We will talk more about reconciliation in a minute. But for the sake of this point on communication, this is an example of how our oneness can be broken. For further study on this, check out James chapter 3. It speaks of how our tongue is a fire. It can set ablaze an entire forest from just one word, one tone. James admits that anyone who does not stumble in what they say is perfect. I think we can all acknowledge with James that this is difficult. We won't do it perfectly because even our speech is corrupted by sin. But it's a vital part of being one in marriage. So start with one small change. Be slow to speak and quick to listen, like James 1 says. Speak at the right time, especially when bringing up a difficult subject. Proverbs 25.11 says, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken at the proper time. Let me ask, how is your communication with the Lord, both with your husband and on your own? Praying together will strengthen your marriage in a new way. And when we are struggling with something about our husband, oftentimes the Lord is the only one we can be totally honest with. Because airing every detail to our mom or a good friend isn't the best approach. If there is sin in his life that you see or if he's, if he's an unbeliever, pray the change into your husband. 
Only God can change his heart, not our nagging and manipulating. So communicate with the Lord. His word tells us to bring our needs to him. Another strategy is to reconcile quickly. This will ensure that your oneness is not left in a vulnerable place. Let's talk about replay for a minute. In the athletic world, in order to see a play more clearly, some referees or umpires use instant replay to watch a video of a certain play. I would often use video to watch myself pitch to see where mistakes were being made. If my arm was bent over my head, if my hips were closing too soon, the ball would not go where I wanted. I couldn't always feel what I was doing wrong, but seeing the video made sense immediately and I could make the correction. If I could video myself during a conversation or disagreement that turned into an argument, I would be able to see where I went wrong because I've done this in a sense. When God has softened my heart and I've been in a humble state, I've gone back and replayed that argument in my mind and can often trace back to where I went wrong and what often small movement I could have changed to prevent things from going awry. We learn in Matthew 15 that what comes out of our mouth proceeds from our heart, not from our circumstance or how we are being spoken to. When we sin against our husband, it comes from the sin in our heart. So in these times, apologize. Don't be satisfied that God has revealed your sin and you've dealt with it only with him. Yes, you have sinned against the Lord, but you need to apologize to your husband in order to bring about reconciliation. Now, of course, there are always two parties in any dispute. Hopefully your husband will also be moved to apologize. In those times, forgive fully. And yes, there will be times he doesn't apologize, and you are called to forgive him anyway. If we understand what we've been forgiven of in regard to our sin against the Holy God, how can we not extend forgiveness? 2 Corinthians 5.19 reminds us that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So while I encourage us to use replay to find our sin, on the flip side, I encourage us to forgive and delete the sins done to us. It's pretty easy to delete video now with a simple swipe on our phone. My old Sopo videos are all on VHS. By using the delete button, once we have forgiven, we are keeping in line with 1 Corinthians 13.5, which tells us to keep no record of wrongs. This idea is actually an accounting term, and the accounting or recording is for the purpose of seeing that the debt is paid in full. It's also used to determine future responses by the individual who owes the debt. Think credit reporting agencies here. Companies and banks use these to see the record of the borrower to determine if they'll likely repay the debt based on past actions. To keep a record of wrong then does two things. It creates an expectation that our husband must work to repay us the debt he owes when he sinned against us. But at what point is it enough? It will never be enough because our husband can't repay that debt, just like we can't either. Rather, God poured out his wrath for your husband's sin, for your sin, for my sin, upon Jesus on the cross. 
Trusting in his finished work frees us to forgive. Second, keeping a record of wrong makes us almost assume our husband will sin again in the same manner given a similar situation, just like the one who continually defaults on his loans. This is not how God operates. He does not look at my sin and say, there she goes again. Remember when she sinned that same way last week? Maybe this time I will withhold my forgiveness a bit. After all, she's probably going to be there again in a few days. That little delete button is powerful. It will help us reconcile with our husband and move forward in a godly way. Now, another strategy I want to talk about is to fight, not your husband, but your sin and anything that would threaten to cause disunity in your marriage. Fight for oneness. I think we need to be realistic that we do have an enemy and there is a real fight to be had, but it's not with our husband. It's with our flesh, meaning our sinful self. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul talks about the desires of our flesh being against the Holy Spirit. The flesh and spirit are opposed to each other. Fight your pride. Fight your selfishness. Fight being annoyed. Choose what offends you. If it's not a sin issue, then just get over it. Like I said before, my husband travels for work sometimes. Inevitably, he will leave that suitcase unpacked in our bedroom for weeks. I grumbled, nagged, and had disrespectful thoughts about that stinking suitcase for years. Eventually, I was convicted about my sin in the matter, so I decided to serve him instead and began unpacking it for him. Love covers a multitude of sins and weaknesses and annoyances. Finally, a great strategy in achieving our goals is to practice. We've probably all heard the phrase, practice makes perfect. Have you also heard, we play like we practice? It means that when it comes to game day, you will play like you've been practicing, either well or poorly. The work you've put into practice will show up on the court or field. Just as with athletics or any form of art, Implementing a change or inserting a new positive habit takes practice, especially if it's not natural. Years ago, I discovered that a friend of mine would write a little note in her daily planner to remind herself to encourage her husband in some way each day. At first, I thought that was really strange and a bit disingenuous, but then I realized, at least she's really doing that each day. It was more than I could say about myself. Just because something doesn't seem natural doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. I'm tempted to think it's not genuine if I have to work so hard or write reminders. But the point is that we prioritize what's important in whatever way that works. So do you struggle with showing physical affection to your husband? Practice. Make it a habit to drop what you're doing and give him a hug and a kiss when he comes home from work. Do you lack gratitude towards your husband? Practice. Make a list of specifically thanking him for at least one thing each day. The more you practice, the easier it becomes and feels more natural. Are you willing to practice and put in the hard work of achieving and maintaining oneness in your marriage? Marriage 
is in the book of Genesis at the beginning of God's word. It's in Revelation at the end as the church is joined to her bridegroom, Jesus. And it's everywhere in between. God accomplishes a lot through this union. So let's consider our team roles, team goals, and team strategies. As wives, we are to be a helper and respecter of our husband. To create oneness within our marriage, we must have goals that line up with God's word. Be united, lay down your life, have realistic expectations. Ultimately, to have a marriage that displays the gospel. We must have strategies in order to achieve our goals. Study the playbook. Maintain godly communication. Reconcile by apologizing and forgiving. Fight what's worth fighting. I'm still learning to cultivate this oneness, and I'm thankful for the ways God has changed me. If you see your marriage as fractured, don't despair. If you're just starting out on this journey, begin with hope. God says he will not leave us nor forsake us. And he says he will finish the good work that's been started. Be encouraged that there is hope for your marriage to be good and God-honoring because he is the one who brought you together. Hold on to the promises and covenant-keeping love of God as you remember that he has made you one. Have courage to stand in our culture today by having a strong marriage that displays the love and sacrifice of the gospel. Okay, wow, Andrea really knocked it out of the ballpark. I know, I had to throw one more corny pun in, but honestly, she had so much good to say to challenge us in how we think and act in regard to our marriages. I hope that your heart was pricked, and maybe today you're thinking about something, you know? But I, that will help your team momentum keep going, right? Your team in the area of with your husband and in your family. Hey, one more cliche that I can't not leave off, and that is now the ball's in your court, ladies. What are you going to do today to encourage and bless your husband and be on the same team with him? Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you for today. I thank you for Andrea's words and her challenge to us to be on the same team with our husband, Lord. Thank you for this whole entire concept of marriage that you have designed and created. And thank you that we can live in this way, work on being sanctified by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that each woman listening today will think of ways today that she can honor her husband and in turn honor you by being on the same team. In Jesus' name, amen. And it's time for this episode's Tiny Tidbit. A Tiny Tidbit is just a small, tiny piece of information that can help you in a really big way. Today's Tiny Tidbit is brought to you from Abby Huss. Abby, so glad to have you. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay, so you are going to tell us a little bit of a Tiny Tidbit. What do you got for us today? Um, today, I'm going to talk about trusting in a marriage. Okay. Um, as we all know, marriage is difficult. Um, it gets even harder when you look online and you see all these quote-unquote perfect marriages yes or even worse you see marriages with unfaithful spouses mm. or you see 
many families with children with no fathers. And that can put fear. Yes. My parents are divorced because of infidelity, so that automatically puts a fear in me personally, and it makes it hard for me to trust my husband Mm -hmm. naturally. The most practical thing would be to limit online activity, but the most important thing, even in limiting online activity, would be to remember that these marriages online aren't your own, and the husband you do have was included in God's plan for you. Mm, True. Marriage isn't easy, but praying and trusting God that he gave you a good man is very beneficial when you get caught in the online drama. Mm. Praying to calm down and to trust the man God gave me, and thus trusting God more, has been a huge blessing in our marriage. Praying every time I get anxious about it has caused me to trust my husband a lot more. Mm, And to trust God, I'm sure. Absolutely. And I like this. Um, How long have you been married? Um, A year and a half. Ah, yay. (laughs) And marriage is hard, but it's good. Absolutely. But um, I like this little piece about limiting the amount of time you're online Mm -hmm. because it's very easy to compare our marriages to other people's. It is. And we can do that even in the church or in our friend group. We can start thinking, well, why is that husband not doing that? You know, why yeah. doesn't he do it? Why doesn't my husband do what he does it? You know, every relationship is different. Yeah. So I think that's really a good reminder to us today. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. listening today. Join us next week as we jump into our monthly installment of our Mom to Mom ministry. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing some really practical direction. Um, And next week, it's all about marriage again. I'm excited to hear about it, and I think it's going to be a great blessing to all of us who are listening. Don't forget to follow or like us on Instagram or Facebook. You can find us at Women of the Word CTW. We put out great content every week. Also, you can find us on your favorite podcast directory. So go and subscribe today. That really helps us out. Hey, even take a minute and leave a five-star review. That would be great. You can find us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, I mean, Spotify, Podbean, I mean, literally anywhere you listen to podcasts, we're there. And we drop a new episode each and every Thursday. So be ready on Thursday mornings to start listening to a new episode. And remember, when everything around you is shaken, you can stand unshaken because of our rock and our fortress, because of God. Until next time.